I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. When we're new parents, we're chronically sleep deprived. Having to feed and settle our babies at night is often what parents say is the hardest part of being a parent. And in my mind, because women are often breastfeeding and men typically go back to work sooner, it's the mothers who are doing the nighttime settling. My guest today feels that this is what we're getting wrong. Dr. Daniel Golshevsky is affectionately known as Dr. Golly to all the parents he's helped. A Melbourne-based pediatrician and father of three, he specializes in supporting families with unsettled babies who subsequently have poor sleep. The secret weapon he believes are fathers, that if they are more involved in settling the babies, that sleep will be easier to achieve and everyone will be happier. Dr. Golly, may I call you Dr. Golly? Absolutely, (laughs) yes. It's certainly easier than Golshevsky, with pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) It's so lovely to have you here on The Parenthood. And I know that so many mothers listening to this will be thinking, hallelujah, this is a brilliant solution. Um, But I just want to understand the thinking behind it. Why is it easier for fathers to settle babies than mothers? Oh, look, there are so many reasons why this is the case. Um, But at at its core, um, there is a fundamental difference between a a mother and a father. And look, just from the outset, I, I, um, I tend to talk in generalisms but this um, this can be applied to same-sex couples it can be also applied the concept to single parents as well but just for ease of conversation I'm going to refer to a, a nuclear family a mother a father um, and assume we're giving we're talking of an example of a breastfeeding mother now there are certain changes that happen when a baby's born that happen to a mother, and one of those changes is obviously the um, development of, of um, more breast tissue, milk ducts, and, and ultimately the production of breast milk. But there's also a lot of changes that happen in a mother's brain, specifically in a part of the brain called the amygdala. And one of the things that happens, which is a very um, clever uh, evolutionary um tool is that the mother has this desire to feed um, and it comes with the desire to care it's like that mother bear instinct that that is born when a baby is born it's an absolutely beautiful thing and a beautiful quality and one we certainly don't want to turn down or minimize or discourage in any way but when it comes to um, trying to settle a baby where the problem is not hunger and there's another reason for a baby to be unsettled and crying If that baby is held by a mother, you've got a baby who will settle if they're put to the breast. 
You've got a mother whose hormones and instincts are telling her, feed the baby. You've got a mother who potentially might be just bursting to the brim, you know, with breast milk. And it's almost inevitable that that baby's going to be fed. Whereas if the father is holding that baby, there is a very strong message being sent to that baby in the father's um, holding, in the father's uh, vibe, if you will, that feeding is just not going to happen. And babies are astute communicators. They are brilliant communicators. We don't give them enough credit, which I'm, I'm happy to to discuss further in a moment, but that baby will pick up on that vibe, that baby will pick up on that nuance and is far more likely to settle in the arms of a father than in the arms of a breastfeeding mother. Can babies smell breast milk or is that an urban myth? Absolutely they can and one of the uh, small little um, nuggets of gold in, uh, in, in my philosophy and my teaching is if you've got a father who is um, absent from the home, you know, they might be away for business or, or even if it's a single mother who's breastfeeding, I often tell them when it's not feed time, put on a, a, an article of clothing, a, a jumper or sweater or something that will mask the smell of breast milk and potentially even uh, trick that baby into thinking it's someone else who's come to pick them up to resettle them because absolutely babies can smell not only breast milk, but they can smell who their mother is, who, who their father is, they can tell exactly who's holding them. Because the difficulty with attachment parenting is that very often it's like the feeding is the solution to everything and parents think they're resolving their parent, their children's needs through feeding them, but often that isn't the case. And bearing in mind that crying is the only way they can sort of verbally communicate with us, it's very often something else that they're wanting and then they just sort of essentially using the breast as a dummy, which is no good for anyone. That is 100% correct. And what you said was, was really um, perfect Crying is their singular form of verbal communication, but there is so much nonverbal communication that goes on, and it's on us to interpret those signs that are telling us, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I've got wind, I'm itchy, I'm hot, I'm cold, and all of these cues are there. It's on us to improve our communication. That's why I say the communication isn't an issue. I, I, I strongly dislike when people refer to me affectionately as the baby whisperer. I'm the parent whisperer. I want to teach the parents how to interpret their baby's cues because the baby isn't the one with the communication problem. It's us who need to learn how to interpret their signs more. And with regard to attachment parenting, the practice is beautiful. The practice is, it's a wonderful thing, but far more important than being a present parent is about being a parent who's present and happy and well-rested and not anxious and enjoying the moment because the baby drinks in more than just breast milk. The baby drinks in the emotions that you bring to that baby. And when you understand that you're feeding your child so much more than just milk, you realize that your emotions that you bring to the table are so important and they pick up on that vibe so easily. They're, they're like animals. They can smell your emotion. Um, and, 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 and that's the most, one of the most important things that I try to, um, to explain to young families that attachment parenting is wonderful. It, it, it is 
brilliant in its concept, but it is of no use to anyone if you are arriving at that baby and you're hating it and you're miserable. You're on the edge of depression or, or a postnatal adjustment disorder, anxiety, if you're resenting the child, resenting your partner, um, feeling like you're neglecting your other children or failing at work or whatever it may be. There's no end to the amount of pressure that we put on ourselves as young parents. So it's one thing to be a present parent. It's another thing to be a parent who's well-rested. And if I can help in any way to um, achieve that, then, then I'll consider that a job well done. I mean, I think that's probably one of the mistakes that new parents make is that, especially I find with mothers, everyone else comes first. Correct. Um, and and it's something I teach antenatal classes and something I always mention to the mums that do the class. I say, you, you, you are like the RSJ in the building. If you're broken, the whole building is broken and the whole family is broken. And so it's almost more important that you're right at the top of the kind of importance list because, I mean, the oldest adage in the book is happy mother, happy baby. And... That is absolutely true. It is true. I always use the analogy of being on an aeroplane and you are instructed to fit your oxygen mask before your children. And it's the same thing. You can't pour from an empty cup. Um, and I often, I remember my own wife would often say to me, um, I would come across her breastfeeding one of our three children and, and I would look at her face and you could see that she was straining. And I would say, what, what's wrong? And she would say, oh, I'm absolutely dying to get to the toilet. And, and I would just think it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that you're putting your baby's needs to feed ahead of your own discomfort. Um, so it comes from such a beautiful place and I don't ever want um, people to get the impression that I'm discouraging that kind of thinking because it really is beautiful. But it is so, so important that you put yourself first, second and third. And when I um, sit in my consulting room and I'm, I'm sitting across from a, a mother, a father, a baby, my focus is on the mother. My focus is not on the baby. And I use the father as my conduit, as my tool to protect the mother, because I know that if I can protect that mother, the baby's going to be absolutely fine, guaranteed. And so in a practical sense of the word, how how can we kind of initiate this? Because I think it is difficult. You know, if you, at the beginning, babies need to feed the whole time. And there's a reason that, you know, women take more parental leave than uh, than men do. But how can we sort of change that slightly? So because I hear you that it does make absolute sense that dads are the ones kind of settling the baby. But what practical tools make that a little bit more feasible? Great questions. Um, in the first few weeks of life, specifically in the first six weeks, I, I don't look to um, implement any routines. There's no pressure at all. This is an important time to establish breastfeeding, to establish a connection, a bond, you know, continue what, what some call the fourth trimester. It's a wonderful time. And I don't want to um, overly separate baby from mum. But from that five to six week mark onwards, um, it's really important that we, that we do create separation, cut the cord, if you will. But you're right that the work begins on day one. The work begins as soon as that baby arrives. And the more hands-on a father can be, the more everyone in the family benefits. So we've actually got evidence, um, quite phenomenal evidence coming from um, uh, England and Israel where they've done studies on the amygdala, what we've talked about before, of fathers who are more involved in the care of their babies. And you can see significant growth 
in their own amygdala just by being more hands-on. We originally thought it was only by birthing a baby that you had this physiological change, but it's not. It's about being more present, being more hands-on. So there's no question that we benefit as fathers. Practically, what can you do from day one? Have the bassinet on dad's side of the bed. It's a very simple manoeuvre. And most people will say, well, that's just silly because then the dad's got to get up and, and then, you know, take the baby over to the mum's side and, you know, why can't dad sleep? It's, it's so much more um, complex than that. By having the baby on dad's side of the bed, dad can seek to troubleshoot and problem solve without having feed being the very first thing you think of. Now, frequent feeding and feeding through the night is absolutely necessary. There is no one around who can, who can say that that's not a necessary part of raising a newborn. But there are so many reasons that could potentially be causing that baby to wake in the day or in the night. And if that mother is in bed as far away from the baby as possible in the bedroom, eye mask on, earplugs in, you know, not being disturbed, and that baby can be picked up, can be winded, perhaps a nappy change, resettled, re-swaddled nice and tight, any number of things to attempt to resettle that baby, you might get another hour's sleep. Now, while the father may be thinking, hold on, I'm getting up now and then I'm getting up in another hour, this is torture for me, um, with all due respect to dads, that mum has just gone through nine months of pregnancy in most cases, has gone through a delivery which is an enormous uh, challenge both physically and emotionally and now coping with significant changes to their body, to their entire lifestyle, their breastfeeding, they're doing it all while sleep deprived and trying to recover and negotiating all of the stresses that are around them, put on them by well-meaning grandparents and social media and God knows what. I don't think that waking up a few more times overnight is really something to complain about compared to what they've been through and what they've delivered to your family. So the, the, it's not too much to ask. And while I do accept that um, there are realities in terms of you know, having to get up in the morning and go to work, I've been there. And, uh, through the, the Australian um, health system in which I was working when I had my first, I had three days off before I returned to work and I returned to night shifts in an emergency department. So I know exactly how you feel. But um, the truth is, is that there, there is a shift happening in society. It's a seismic one. It's happening very slowly. And it's probably being led by the um, more modern corporate um, companies out there with a far more uh, generous and, and uh, involving paternity leave packages. So we're seeing changes. We're seeing um, people realise the importance of dads getting involved more, uh, not just for their own happiness, but for the, the family unit. And ultimately, it comes around full circle and benefits the dad as much as anyone else, because the more involved you are, especially in the evening, trying to stretch those night sleeps, the more, the faster the entire family will be sleeping through the night. And and my um, my target, if you will, for a baby who is six weeks of age, um, who is of adequate weight and with no other health problems, that baby can be sleeping through the night, a good seven-hour stretch of sleep by six weeks of age. And it's just not going to happen without 
a lot of help from the village that helps to raise that child. And and in our current villages, they are small. We're just usually a, a family living um, alone as opposed to a tribe living together. So the more that you help and, and be more hands-on, the, the more it's going to benefit you in the long term. And it's not just making it life easier for everyone. I mean, there's obviously huge benefits in the beginning of, you know, forming a secure attachment with this human being that you Exactly you've right. You, you do. You have a stronger attachment. We, we have um, oodles of data that tell us um, that children who grow up with fathers more present, more hands-on, more involved, uh, it, it fundamentally changes their development. Um, we know that dads, and again, I am generalising here, of course, but dads, when they play with, with children, tend to be more physical. Um, and therefore, we know that children who have um, more hands-on fathers who are more physical with them do develop their hand-eye coordination faster, their gross motor development faster, um, their balance, their coordination. All of these things are happening by being um, more physical, more playful, uh, play fighting, wrestling, you name it. And um, it, it's, it's wonderful for, for sons to have close relationships with their fathers, for sons to see their fathers more involved in the raising of a child, as opposed to um, many in our generation, for example, where we, we, didn't, we never saw that. And for us, it was, you know, you'd be lucky to see your dad for an hour before bed at the end of the day and, and perhaps over the weekend. Um, th- those times are gone. Those times, they, they should be well and truly behind us because, um, you know, we are oh, we are educating and training women at, at a greater rate than we ever ha- have in human history. And yet, at the same time that we're expecting them to achieve more in terms of careers and in terms of work and in terms of contribution to the family, we aren't taking pressure off them in equal part when it comes to the child raising. And that's not fair. So we need to shift a little bit more of that um, that onus, that responsibility onto dad so it becomes very much a, a, a team effort. And ultimately, everyone's going to benefit. And also just disregarding this notion that babies are sort of little blobs until they're kind of verbal. Because I believe that, firstly, they are born with personalities that are very distinct often, but also they are like sponges. And from the moment they are born and they open their eyes, that education begins. It's something I would say to dads, you know, the nappy changing is not about wiping excrement off their bottom. It's an opportunity to engage with them. And I would say, talk to them, sing to them, because actually a baby that's never smiled at will never smile. A baby that's never talked to will never learn to talk. The child that is engaged verbally and talked to from an early age will probably be a quicker communicator which actually makes life a lot easier. But when they become verbal, life does become easier because you can just understand their words as opposed to sort of try and decode what they're trying to tell you. But that starts from day one. It's not like at three you can sort of get involved and once you can have conversations. With it them. does. It absolutely does. It probably even starts before they're born. And, you know, there are many mums, I don't know if you would, you would vouch for this, that will say that there is a form of communication that goes on in the womb between mother and baby. Well, they, they, they know that babies respond uniquely to the voices they yes, heard in the womb. exactly right, exactly right. And um, I could not possibly agree with you more. The more you interact with them, they are, they are sponges and they mirror what they see. And that's why when we, um, when we interact with a, a baby of 
six, seven, eight weeks, we instinctively coo with them because that's what they can do. And when you do engage in a conversation with a baby, you know, 10 centimetres from their face and you are responsively cooing back and forth, I mean, that's more nourishing and enjoyable than half the conversations I have every day. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. So to have that, um, that interaction, it is absolutely priceless. And it does. It feeds them and it fuels them and it nourishes their development. They know exactly who you are and they gain so much from it. But make no mistake, we gain so much from it as well. And actually, you know, if you do talk to a baby and then stop and listen, they will kind of coo back at you, won't they? They will. If you actually listen to them, they, they, you know, they will, I've heard it happen and they go, gah, 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 whatever it is, but they are, that is communication. It absolutely is. My, um, my mother is a, 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 a primary school teacher for many, many, many years. And she has since moved into um, teaching children with significant disability. Um, and she practices a, a form of um, communication which was developed by a UK doctor called intensive interaction. And it is communicating with children, adolescents, who have such severe cerebral palsy that they have absolutely no form of communication in or out, um, except for one or maybe two repetitive noises. And intensive interaction is when you get up very close with these adults these significantly disabled adults and you repeat their noise to them and she will sometimes i've watched videos of her doing it she'll sometimes make this noise to a child or an adolescent for half an hour and get nothing in response and the moment she stops you see a flicker in the eye of the child and you see a form of communication that no one has seen for 20 years you see parents you know, collapsing from the emotion of that. And there is no question that if you have a heartbeat, you have an ability to communicate. Any animal, we're all animals, and babies are absolutely no different. From day one, they can communicate, they can, be, they can understand, they can be understood. And the more we work on that, the better. The more practice you get as a parent, the better you get it as well. Well, and it's an investment, you know, a relationship doesn't just evolve because you happen to share DNA with each other. It is an investment, which is why, you know, your point at the beginning, you know, for ease sake, we're talking about a nuclear family, but this is just as much if it's a, an adoptive situation, or if it's a same sex situation, or even if you're just a good friend, you know, supporting a friend who's a single parent, that bond can be established regardless of the DNA. Exactly right. Exactly. And it's the reason why we see, you know, when animals are taken away from their owners for even potentially years at a time and then come back to their owners, they know exactly who their owner is. It doesn't matter how much they've grown or how, how much time has passed, they can tell. And babies are exactly the same. That bond starts from day one. And the more you work on it, the more you build it, the stronger it gets like any muscle. And obviously, you know, Parenting in the 21st century, when there is such strain and expectation within the workplace, and on the one hand, flexible working, fantastic in some regard. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But we are slightly expected to be on call the whole time we are able to be got hold of. And that obviously presents a significant obstacle to parents I think, A, being able to totally focus on their child because we've got these mobile phones, which actually, they're such a big distraction. And and so often I see, you know, babies or children desperately trying to get their parents' attention and the parents are being essentially distracted by their, their phones. But what is the solution? I mean, I always say to people, try to put your phone on silent. And if you're going to spend time with your child, if you've made that decision, actually spend time with your child. Don't just be in the same room, but you know, scrolling through Instagram, you know, to have that time to work, but make that time that you spend with your child all about Absolutely your child. Absolutely agree. Um, and it goes for at any age, whether your child is, is two weeks old or, or 22 years old, you need to be present when you are um, when you are with your child. And part of being present is, is being emotionally present as well, which means being well slept. So that comes back to what we talked about, the, the not just the um, time available parent, but the emotionally available parent as well. Um, that's why feeding is a lovely thing. And probably um, from an evolutionary point of view, why babies, it may contribute or may explain why babies feed frequently and why feeding takes so long because it's like a forced mindfulness. It's a time when you sit down, if you're a breastfeeding mother or a bottle feeding mother or a bottle feeding father, you can't be elsewhere. You can't stand up and walk around or take a meeting or or unpack the dishwasher. You have to just sit sometimes for half an hour or longer, an hour at a time, and just be. It's the most wonderful form of meditation. And you're, you're telling that baby, there's nowhere else in the world I need to be right now. There's no one else I want to be with right now. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And we should continue that practice through all mealtimes. So when a family, a young family sitting down for dinner, phones should be off the table, televisions should be turned off, radios off, and it should be a time to reflect and to connect and to be together and celebrate and eat good food and no different to sitting down with a baby. Sit down for an hour. Don't be in a hurry. Have a set time. You know, there are so many similarities and so much we can learn from the, the newborn period that we should take with us all throughout our, our parenting years. Because attention is the thing they want the most from us, starting from the moment they're born, um, even through to the teenage years, what they ultimately crave more than anything is our focus. Um, and I see so often with sort of toddlers, often the, you know, the, 
they're, they're having a tantrum, they're playing up, they're being difficult. And it's often when the parent's distracted, you're in a social situation and the parent actually wants to hang out with her friends and have a glass of wine and not talk to a toddler that they're saying, no, look at me, look at me. And obviously you can't give all your attention all the time to your child. But at the same time, at least, you know, making sure that when you are with them that you are invested with in them. that's right well we, we talked we've talked a lot about attachment um practices and you know there, were, there was a beautiful book written recently that talked about um different kinds of parents and, and it looked at analogies between a carpenter and a gardener and a lot of people try to be the carpenter like geppetto they try to carve the perfect child and they want to um, add this and, and change this and create this but it doesn't work like that. We are gardeners and we, when one has a child, when you become a parent, all we can do is, is tend to the soil. We can't determine exactly how big they grow, which way they grow, how they look when they grow. What we can do is try to set up the environment as, as well as we possibly can. And so I often hear parents, even friends say to me, well, in response to what you just said, I don't, I don't want to respond to my child all the time, lest they become bratty and, and demanding and think that they can always have my attention and never know how to be patient or how to wait their turn or, or have bad manners. That doesn't happen when the child has a very strong foundation. When the child knows that when they really need their parent, their parent is there because they have that foundation, then that child will not be needy for attention because you're correct it's like any media is good media well any attention is good attention for a child um, even if it's coming in the form of a scold or a reprimand they at least they're getting you know their parent looking at them um, so there is a balance and and you do need to um, at times teach your child to wait or, or not be overly needy but the truth is is that the more you um, edify them, the more you build them up and, and give them that strong foundation from day one, the less they're going to need um, in times of minimal stress. Well, there's that wonderful um, experiment. You can watch it online on YouTube. I think it's called the Still Face Experiment. I, I'm sure you've yes. seen it, but where, where there's a mother and a, I mean, the baby must be, what, six, seven, eight months old and very contented baby sitting in a pushchair and the mother's really engaging with them and talking to them in the way that we usually do. And then the mother turns around and faces the baby again and is just not a sort of scary face, not an angry face, but just totally blank, not responsive at all. And very quickly, the baby becomes incredibly distressed. And it makes you realize how much they rely on us engaging with them and actually how distressing it is when we don't engage with them. And actually, back to your point of nurturing the parents, you know, if a mother or a father are depressed or exhausted or whatever it is, don't have the energy to engage, that is actually much more difficult for the child to cope with than um, a child, a, a parent who hopefully, you know, is sort of emotionally well nourished, who can, you know, has the energy to, to properly engage with their child. That's exactly right. And, and that's a beautiful example of the parent who's present, but not really present when they're flat, when their affect is down. Um, when they're not smiling, when they're not wide-eyed with a with you know with a big toothy grin, um, you know babies, especially newborns, um, they they can't see well. They can't see you. They have such terrible acuity that they can't see more than a few centimeters in front of their face. And what they can see is the difference between light and dark. 
And so that's one of the reasons why the areola of a, of a woman who's just had a baby or approaching delivery will get much darker because the baby seeks the, the delineation between light and dark, and that's how they find the nipple to breastfeed. But the other thing that has a big contrast is the white of your eyes next to your iris and the flash of white teeth compared to the darkness of your lips. So there's a very good reason why our faces were designed the way they are designed. And there's a very good reason why when we look in someone's face and we show pure happiness and, and, and engagement and excitement, our eyes widen and our smile grows. So we engage people and we engage babies in exactly the same way. And obviously, you know, all of this is sort of leading to kind of sleep, which which obviously helps for everyone. You know, well-rested parents are likely to be more present. But it also, good, ordered sleep is massively beneficial to us as human beings, you know, particularly for children. I mean, sure, that's something you see a lot of in your practice. Absolutely. We all crave structure. It's something that we crave as an as animals. We crave um, knowing where our boundaries are. We crave knowing what is coming next. Um, and there's no question that we find comfort in structure. I am not militant in any way in my routines. I like a rhythm to begin with before establishing any routine, a feed rhythm followed by sleep, followed by play, followed by sleep. Um, when it comes to six weeks and onwards, that rhythm can very easily be turned into a predictable routine, which works wonders for the baby. And it works wonders for the parents as well. You know, often, if you're talking to a parent of a, of a two month old, you know, you can, if they're my patient, you can say to them, what are you doing at 10 o'clock next Tuesday morning? And they can tell you exactly where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing. Whereas if there's no structure and it's if it's very haphazard and all over the place and sometimes frequent, if you've got an unsettled baby, it's very disconcerting for baby and for parents to not know what's coming or, or how long a break you have or can you make a social arrangement? Can you book an appointment? What's going to happen next? It is, it's very difficult. Um, and that's why structure is such an important part of of this picture if it is something that you want it's not something you have to have and it should never be forced upon someone but um, there is no doubt that people in general will feel more comfortable with a structure well and as soon as babies become able to articulate their preference or children let's say you know you see your toddler who wants to read the same book again and again and again and as soon as you finish it they want to start it again and you know us parents are going come on surely you want a little bit of variety here but actually for them knowing what happens to the Garofalo on page six is a really empowering feeling and and for me that is a really good indicator that structure rather than being kind of brutal and something that's sort of foisted upon them is actually such a reassuring thing to have I mean even during the pandemic you know when we sort of meandered around a bit and had a little less structure it uh, I think people really struggle children particularly really struggle and we look there's a lot of evidence that's come out recently in response to home learning and lockdowns especially in my state of Victoria where we had extremely long periods of lockdown that schools who implemented a very structured day um, obviously 
altered to to reflect the fact that children were at home and often it was difficult to have um, support from parents who may have been working at the same time. When there was more structure applied, they they performed far better, they adapted far better, and they returned to school in a in a far more happy, um, less anxious, and and and. Uh, generally more content manner. So there is no question that uh, all through the lifespan we, we do. We prefer the structure. And often um, when, when people leave the structure of schooling, they often, um, they often crave it. They, they try to bring it back themselves. We all keep diaries and we, we like to have um, structure to our day for that very reason. Yeah. And in terms of sort of structured sleep, I mean, all of us humans sleep better if we go to bed at sort of relatively the same time each night. And so presumably that's even more profound for for children who are sort of learning to go to sleep. That's right. We have sleep windows where you start to show signs of being tired. Um, And that's another thing that we work on a lot in the program is educating and empowering parents to interpret those tired signs so that you can recognize when the window is is open um, and get your baby to sleep as as quickly as possible um, and not enter into the overtired territory. So overtired exists all throughout the lifespan. So many of the things we're talking about that they don't they're not limited to babies only. Um, but certainly if you if you try to go to sleep overtired, it's extremely hard. I mean there have been many, many times where I'm sitting on the on the couch working or watching TV and my eyes are closing, I'm nodding off. Um, I've entered overtired and then I get up and, and get ready for bed and then I put my head on the pillow and my eyes are wide open and I cannot for the life of me get to sleep. Well, that's when you've missed that that melatonin surge. You've missed that opportunity to fall asleep in your tired window and babies are exactly the same. So the better that we can equip parents um, and empower parents to, to have the tools to interpret what their baby's saying, the more you can... Um, you can figure out when to do what with your child and have them feeding at the right time, sleeping at the right time. They get into a structure, they feel more comfortable. And as I said, it just returns in spades. The the entire family unit benefits from that. And it's also not limited to a a newborn if it's your first baby. A lot of people will say to me, um, structure and routine worked brilliantly for our first and it's all well and good when you've got two people working on it but when a second child arrives which is typically sort of on average when the first is around two to three years of age just you know in the middle of terrible twos and tantruming and potentially attending daycare so there's drop off and pick up as well it's it becomes you know an impossible balancing act to do it um that is another example of where dads really really can can come to the fore and and be the hero of the day. And presumably in all of this, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd all take, dads would take longer parental leave. Look, if we lived in an ideal world, it it would absolutely be the case. Um, I I would love parental leave to to be an umbrella term, and it doesn't matter if you're a mother or a father, even an adoptive parent, you should be able to have a long period of, of leave, fully paid, you know, ideal world, we can choose whatever we like, like fully paid and return to your job waiting for you, that would be wonderful. Um, but, you know, there are realities in life and so we, we, we have to live within those realities. You know, we've talked about how society has changed. Society's also become very expensive and there are realities. There are a lot of dual-income families and it's not feasible to just all of a sudden have dad um, 
not working or have dad underslept because they're, they're doing so much. Um, but what we do know is that when you've got a happy, settled baby, uh, plus potentially a happy, settled, sleeping toddler as well, then both mother and father will actually return to the workforce earlier. And governments and corporations are starting to, to wake up to this, pardon the pun. They are understanding that in actual fact, if we support parents more, we benefit. And there's an enormous um, body of, of literature that talks about the, the cost of overtired to big business and the cost to government and the cost in the form of accidents that are happening. Um, major accidents and minor accidents occurring because people are so tired. So if, if we can really put the focus on sleep for, for children and for parents, there are massive gains to be had across the board. And the irony is, is that, you know, in the first world, it's parents who live in the, exist in the first world arguably have the least support from the community in which they live. You know, I was I was talking to a woman who who grew up in Mexico and she said, you know, everyone in Mexico, you have your baby and for 40 days you are nurtured by the community. And this isn't the government and this isn't expensive daycare. This is just simply, you know, the people living quite basic lives, but the community get together and all the mother needs to do is sort of, you know, try and feed her baby, but the cooking is done and the organizing is done and the, you know, someone there to take the baby. And that I just think is just such a great start to this parenting. It's so much job. better. It's, we still see those, those practices in China. Um, with mm. with uh, major hospitals that are not quite hospitals, but the places that are set up where you go after a baby's born and the mother doesn't leave the bed. And, and as you said, meals are cooked and washing is done and baby is cared for um, and, and supported. You know, we, we see it in tribes in Mongolia as well. You know, the, the phenomenal practices, the way it should be done almost. But of course, we, you know, we have other benefits from living in a society that we've created. But one of the downsides is that we, we do, we live in silos and we're separated and we don't share the load very often. Um, and then throw into the mix in, in recent years uh, an enormous amount of pressure through social media, um, expectation, um, you know, a lot of people potentially um, not painting the truest picture of what is happening in their own lives. And that, that puts a lot of pressure on, on young families who don't think they're doing well enough, who are full of self-doubt um, and who really suffer from a, a turning down of the volume of their innate parental instinct. And that is one of the, the tragedies of, of our modern society is that people second guess a lot. And one of the first questions that I will ask a parent if they walk into my room and talk about a problem that, that um, someone has pointed out to them, whether it's the baby's weight or the child's language skills, whatever it may be, my first question is, how concerned are you? And it's so telling when a parent turns around and says, I actually wasn't that bothered by it. I can relax. And if the parent says, yeah. I keep on being reassured, but honestly, I can't sleep at night, I'm terribly worried about this particular issue, then I know that there's an issue there. You always trust a parent. Um, and, and it's important that we do, we turn the volume up on that, that maternal and paternal instinct. And we, we really need to do a better job of that in our society. Well, Dr. Golly, it's been so lovely to chat to you. I feel like I could chat for ages. It's so lovely to have that sort of voice of reason. Tell me a little bit about your online sleep program. So this is something, I mean, you're obviously based in Australia, but this is something that parents all over the 
world can take part in. It is, and we've got wonderful uptake across um, the planet. It really is nice to see because it's one thing that's so easily transferable. You know, babies all speak the same language. There's no, there's no um, difference from baby born in the UK, baby born in New Zealand, Australia, Germany, you name it. Um, there are certainly cultural differences, but there are certain things that are absolutely universal and never ever change. So the program was set up because I wanted to reach more than one patient at a time. I wanted to be able to um, spread this um, body of knowledge and, and as I said, just empower a parent. I wanted to be able to give parents the tools to interpret their child's communication better. And once you can tell what your baby needs or what may be holding your baby back from sleeping better or from being more settled, once you know what it is, you're then provided with the tools to fix that problem, to troubleshoot, and a whole range of, of other information, just things that can often get people anxious or worried. What is that rash? Um, why is that happening? Why has my baby changed or what, whatever it may be? So there's, there's an enormous amount of information in this program it's not something that tells you what you need to do it tells you what your options are it tells you what your baby's capable of it's not intended to put any pressure on it's intended to cut through that it's intended to bring to turn that volume up as we discussed it's it's intended to empower the parent the mother the father it's for grandparents as well and ultimately it's about getting more sleep it's about having happier babies having settled babies, happier parents as a result of that as well. And for me, as I said, it's not about militant regimens. I'm not about routines like that. It's about providing all of the options on the table and practical solutions. The other thing that I, I strongly um, uh, I struggled with is when I had my first child and I was looking for content like this, you could find things online and you'd download a 100-page document and then be expected in all your sleep deprivation and fog to read through something and take it in and apply it to your child. So the vast majority of the content is video-based. It's, it's like pro progressing through a, a course online. You can come into it, come out of it whenever you want. Uh, you know, to do a chapter would be could be no more than an hour and you can come back to the parts that are relevant to you skip past the parts that are not relevant as well so we've tried to make a really really um, all-encompassing package that provides really practical solutions one of the most popular parts of it is the active winding method um, wind being one of the key drivers of unsettled behavior one of the most under-recognized problems that i see in unsettled babies and frequent feeding and and unsettled families for that matter so um, that's one thing that we pay particular attention to is an active method of winding and just trying to get that baby as settled as possible um, and and really to to return the power to the parents well, it sounds amazing. I wish it had been around when my children were, <laughs> were little. Um, Dr. Golly, thank you so much. It's been really lovely to chat to you. Um, if you want to find a little bit more about uh, the Dr. Golly Sleep Program, um, just go to drgolly.com. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate, and review whatever you found this podcast you can also follow me on instagram i'm at marina.fogel but in the meantime thanks for listening goodbye
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.